My name is Mike. I'm a priest at Holy Communion Episcopal Church up in um, University City on Del Mar. Uh, we get together here at Dressel's usually the first Tuesday of the month uh, to have a discussion. And uh, you can see our, our next month is scheduled in October. I'll say more about that at the end. But we're looking forward to one of our theologians and re residents, Dr. Adam Floyd from Eden Seminary, is going to be with us to talk about faith and Star Wars. Um, this month, we're really glad, and, and I'm glad, um, I asked Lori to put together this conversation while I was away on, uh, on family leave, and Lori, as usual, did an incredible job, but she also brought more folks than I initially anticipated, which is fantastic. So we had a number of folks from Holy Communion that joined with a big group uh, that was organized from faith communities around St. Louis, led by the Jewish community, uh, to go down to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, to protest a potential detention center for immigrants at the site of a former Japanese internment camp, because there's your symbolism. Um, and it, it brought up a number of questions. The, the first was, what, what was this all about? What is this bus trip all about? Explain to me what was that about. And I thought it would be really good for us to have a conversation broadening what that bus trip was all about. And so we wanted to invite, and I'm grateful to those of you from the congregations who came who were on the bus trip, and we've tried to spread people out around the room, so hopefully you are near-ish somebody who was on the bus. But tonight is a lot bigger than just what was the bus trip about. Immigration has become... It's interesting, when we, we promote this event on Facebook as part of our um, advertising budget for the churches, and when we decided to do an immigration topic, we had to do all of this new registration on Facebook to prove that we weren't like some kind of Russian bot. <laughs> because immigration has become such a hot topic and such a divisive topic, and that's such a strange thing, uh, from a faith perspective. And I wanted to spend a little time having the conversation that is being had, but to do it from a why would a big group of people of faith choose to get involved in questions of immigration, choose to raise their voice. And I'm really, really grateful uh, that both Lori, who was able to be on the bus trip, um, and, and be with us, who's been involved in community activism in St. Louis for a long time, and Rory Pickernese are with us. Uh, Rory is a colleague, um, a, uh, a leader in the Jewish community in St. Louis. I always forget the name of your organization. The Jewish Community Relations Council. Jewish Community Relations Council, the JCRC. Um, Rory is a um, seminary trained, is seminary the right word? Uh, seminary trained Orthodox woman. Um, and that is a rare thing. Uh, and I've, I've asked Rory to be involved in questions around uh, human rights before. Last October, Rory was part of a panel we pulled together with our partners at Christosol when we talked about human rights and immigration at Washington University. And Rory's organization was leading the charge on this particular bus trip. Some of what Rory said about immigration a year ago has continued to resonate for me uh, across this whole year as questions of immigration 
had, I joined the board of Priestess All, the organization that we had in, with us at uh, WashU. And as we've talked about the um, plight of folks down in Central America, some of what Rory has said about the Jewish community and the perspective that they bring to this immigration debate has continued to resonate for me. So I was super excited when Rory said, Lori said that Rory, it's hard because their name's right. When Lori said that Rory was going to be with us, um, I was very excited to hear from um, Rory again. So you all know Lori. Lori Anzalotti is our new assistant rector at Holy Communion, works with me at the church. Uh, Rory is at the, um, and, oh, I just lost it, uh, Jewish Community Relations Council, the JCRC for St. Louis. Uh, and please help me welcome them to Theology of We had no idea if anyone would come along with us. 
Um, but we said, you know, we have to try. We said at least there's five of us in the room now, so five of us will go. Um, and we started putting out the call, and we got over 100 people signed up, including some of the people in this room today. Um, I will say that from the time that we decided to do this until the time that we went, the government changed the policy. They said they weren't going to open up Fort Sill. And we felt like it was still important that we go and that we make the claim, in part because we needed to stand up, and in part because we also wanted to demonstrate that people didn't need to jump to extremes to have a voice. What I mean by that is that there was a lot of debate happening, particularly in the Jewish community. Um, are we allowed to call them concentration camps? Are we allowed to say never again? What are the, right, there was a lot of visceral reaction to comparisons to the Holocaust. And we said, you know what? We can't get mired in this debate to the point where we do nothing. So instead of debating what we can and can't say, let's just decide what we're gonna say. Um, and so I think you have some on the table. We put together this Heartland for Human Justice. It became a coalition of over 30 organizations, including synagogues, churches, um, other nonprofit organizations, with five specific calls. We said we wanted to stop separating families, to reunite families that had been separated, to treat immigrants as humans with dignity and care, safe living conditions for those in US custody, and allow people to seek liberty in our country. We didn't want this to become a partisan debate. I know that it is a partisan debate, and maybe that's just naive to say, but our goal is to say we're not going to talk about specific elected officials. We're not going to talk about specific policies. We're going to talk about our values. And that's what we're going to go and stand up for. We're going to travel, and we're going to just stand up for those values that we think need to be heard again. So, we got on the bus, it's about a 10 hour ride down, um, a 10 hour ride back. Um, it, was, it was a little bit funny in a sense, right? So we left at seven in the morning, it stopped, we didn't get there until about 7.30 in the evening. At dinner, we stayed over at a hotel, we got up the next morning, and then we just did a few things that I think were really significant. We went to one of the local churches, um, and we prayed together, we sang together, we told the stories of the children that had been held in detention. We recited the names of every person who died since the change in Homeland Security policy. And we held each other. We read these commands. That's what we did. We went to Fort Sill, we sang, we gathered together, and then we went back home. But we felt that it was crucial in that moment. Our actions, we know, it didn't transform the whole immigration debate. Uh, we know that there's limited ramifications for any one thing. But part of what we felt that we needed to do was bear responsibility for the role that we all had. And I think the biggest part of that responsibility was holding the people who are most directly impacted, and especially those who don't have the voice to speak for themselves. And so in that, I want to invite, I know that there are some people who, are, who have joined us here, 
who are going to read for us the names of the children who died while in U.S. custody. Where your body is left aching 
or prison because prison is safer than a city of fire. And one prison guard in the night is better than a truckload of men who look like your father. No one could take it. No one could stomach it. No one skin would be tough enough. The go-home blacks, refugees, dirty immigrants, asylum seekers, sucking our country dry, niggers with their hands out, they smell strange, savage, messed up their country, and now they want to mess ours up. How do the words, the dirty looks, roll off your backs, maybe because the blow is softer than a limb torn off? Or the words are more tender than 14 men between your legs. Or the insults are easier to swallow than rubble, than bone, than your child body in pieces. I want to go home, but home is the mouth of a shark. Home is the barrel of the gun. And no one would leave home unless home chased you to the shore, unless home told you to quicken your legs leave your clothes behind, crawl through the desert, wade through the oceans, drown, save, be hunger, beg, forget pride. Your survival is more important. No one leaves home until home is a sweaty voice in your ear saying, leave, run away from me now. I don't know what I've become, but I know that anywhere, is safer than here. At this point, we could we could end our talk about our trip. We've shared how Heartland came to be and what our trip was about. We've shared with you some of the people we've carried and the poetry that we used in prayer. But this is. Um, theology on tap, and it's faith and immigration. So one thing that we need to look at is, what is it that our faith, whatever that may be, what does it lend to this conversation or add to this conversation? Um, in Christianity, we say that we make our decisions, we, we make decisions through using reason, scripture, tradition, and listening to the voice of community, and boy, just getting ordained, there's a lot of voices in the community to listen to. I have a lot of committees to listen to. So we start right now by saying, what, what has your reason been saying? You've been listening to the news. You've been following along. You have connections to this topic. So you bring your own reason. And we bring scripture, our shared scripture, and ones that are scripture that's particular to our tradition. So Rory's going to share a couple pieces of um, scripture that speak to the immigrant, the foreigner in our presence, and then I will um, from each of our traditions. And um, we'll just think about the lens of scripture. So the thing I don't know if Lori knows, Jews don't just bring scriptures, we do like intense text studies. So <laughs> <laughs> Which in the Jewish tradition, by the way, we think, oh, oh. 
history that's your own history. And that's the reminder when the Torah, when our text repeats to us, not to forget that we were strangers in the land of Egypt, it's not just to remember the ways that we were oppressed, but to remember the steps that go into what needs to happen before a people can become an oppressive people to another group. Thank you. And for us as Christians, one person wrote up here that who they brought with them tonight is Jesus. Jesus, who himself was a refugee. We follow, as Starsky Wilson said when he was recently with us, people love to make this manger all glossy and golden. It's a trough, people. <laughs> because he had nowhere to go. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he's looking to who's in the tree at the edge. He's feeling the person who reached through the crowd to touch him, not the person who's right in front. He's always looking to the margins, looking to the edge to see who is being forced there. Who is being forced into hiding and who he needs to discover, to lift up and to name their fullness of humanity. This is our shared tradition, Torah and Jesus. This is what forms the tradition of Christianity. So you've got your reason. We've looked briefly at scripture. The scripture forms our tradition of how the church has interacted with the issue of immigration. And now it's time for community. It's time for you to turn to one another Think about the things that you've heard tonight that we've shared and to use these reflection questions that are on your table to begin to think through this as a community. So I'm going to take you through them real quick. Um, it, this is a product of a conversation that is obviously much bigger than we can fit into one night. So I want to do just a little bit of wraparound and contextualization on this. So, Part of, when we talk about immigration stories, part of what we want to ask you to do tonight is to think about your own stories around immigration. What immigrant stories do you know? Does your family have an immigrant story? How did your people become Americans? Um, I put that question, do that in quotations on purpose. Um, bonus points if you know why. Um, did your family, this this is part of a conversation that I got to hear a little bit of that um, was going on between Rory and Lori before tonight. But in all of this, in our sense of the current context around immigration, there is this tension around what does it mean to um, migrate lawfully or migrate the correct way. And there's this background story about pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Right? Um, so I want to ask, as you think about that immigrant story, uh, did your family pull themselves up by their own bootstraps? Really? Did someone save or significantly help you or a member of your family along the way? Is that story told? Think about that a little bit. Talk at your table. Then, the third question, um, and you, you just got some cliff notes here, so uh, what stories do you know from your faith tradition about immigrants? And those can be biblical stories, or they can be bigger. 
I want to contextualize the second question for just a second. What does it mean to be part of a post-tribal tradition? So Christianity is interesting in its spin on this, and, and really, um, and I'd love to have a long conversation with you about this sometime, Rory, but um, the way in which the Judeo-Christian and even all of the Abrahamic traditions are interacting with their own culture and their own place, there is this tension about the idea of a tribe and who counts as an insider and who counts as an outsider. And scripture is all over the map on some of this, but, but these passages about welcome the stranger in your midst because you were a stranger, they lead into a Christian understanding of moving past these sort of nationalistic understandings. You get to St. Paul who says, in Christ there is no longer Jew nor Greek, which would have shocked anybody. Um, who knew St. Paul's setting. But what does it mean to be part of a faith tradition that is intentionally pushing up against really firm human boundaries? To be a part of a post-tribal, um, or, or tribal reconstructed, at least, deconstructed tradition. Um, how does your faith invite you to engage people who migrate? So we're going to give you about 20 minutes to talk at your tables about these questions, and then we'll come back as a big group for a discussion. Talk amongst yourselves at the end. Yeah, yeah, but talk amongst yourselves.
they were watching And then my grandfather
I want to do a, a quick process. So you don't have to raise your hand if you're not comfortable, but for how many of you did you know a member of your family who immigrated to the United States? For how many of you is it a couple generations before you were here? For how many of you is it a whole bunch of generations? Your family's been here for a long time. For how many of you are there multiple times at which you could have raised your hand? <laughs> right? Um, it's, it's an interesting, it, it's not clean. And it's, it's interesting to me which immigrant, which family stories get told and which family stories don't get told, too. Um, what about the second question? I wonder if anyone had a specific story of somebody who pulled up your family's bootstraps with you.
few minutes. What do you do with a faith tradition that thinks of itself as being past firm identity factor and then is doing what it's doing right now? How is your brain processing with that? Kevin. Um, my family came over from Ireland and they were playing almost exclusively Irish Catholic. Yeah. And they came from a place that didn't recognize either their, their Irishness or their, their religion. Yeah. When they came over here, they brought the entire bubble with them. Yeah. So, kind of back to question number two, they really depended upon the community to assist them. Because you, know, you, you can't pull yourself up and bootstrap if you don't have well, and that's part of, I mean, I, I touch on this a lot, but when we talk about religious identity formation, you know, what Irish Catholics face, both for being Irish and for being Catholic when they arrived in this country, it was a lot of systemic um, discrimination. And that forms religious identity in a particular way. Um, and, and so there's, and it's interesting because it, you'll hear a lot of folks that come from historically discriminated against communities who can name specific other families um, that helped them along the way. You go to Boston and you, the number of Irish folks that are still in all the law enforcement families, right? Because that was one place where the government couldn't legally discriminate and a few families got footholds and they brought other family folks in with them. And so those stories do continue to be told. about 60 years old, he went to the pastor one day and he said, 
madness turning into Judas or something. I don't understand what my little brother said. But anyhow, the pastor said, well, they all believe in God, so it must be a good thing. <laughs> well, and, and there is a, you know, when, when we talk about religious identity formation, it, it was really interesting to me, sort of early in this administration, the Pope came to the United States, lectured Congress about immigration, went down to the border, but it's interesting to see what parts of the Roman Catholic Church are involved in this right now and, and what parts really aren't. Um, and there's a lot of question to be asked about, you know, part of what's going on right now is some of the priorities that have been listed as key political priorities for Roman Catholic bishops and, and archbishops in the United States are being really trumpeted right now. Read that as anti-abortion judges. And so there seems to be like, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, the nuns are out in force on the border. <laughs> but but there's an interesting sort of bargaining going on, it seems, on Catholic social teaching uh, about what is a, what really forms a Catholic identity and a Catholic ethic, and what is you know if we can get one, what are we willing to let go of? I actually read an interesting article. others that might have questions, thoughts, things they want to process? of the church 
that God had given us this land and had, had helped us to discover it. Um, and so we repudiated that and, and repented for, um, there was an official mass to mark this. And of course it's not talked about very much. But it is a part of, there was an official mass to repent and to talk about how we need to be thinking a lot more about First Nations people. Um, in Canada, that's something I've been toying with, I want to raise with the worship committee, I'm not promising anything yet, but in Canada, every time I've been to an Anglican church service in Canada, it tends to start with a recognition of the tribes whose land that the church is sitting on where we're worshiping. Um, which is just another interesting, you know, when you talk about, um, when you get into all of this, even if your family goes back hundreds and hundreds of years in this country, at what point did you become Americans? Who got my bonus point for, what? why did I put Americans in quotes? Yeah, because los americanos son más que los Estados Unidos, ¿verdad? Um, American is, a, is an idea that we tend to use, I mean, like, if you ask someone from Central American, from Central America, if they're American, they're going to look at you like, like I looked at, um, yeah, when somebody asked me if I was Christian, and I was like, I'm baptized, and I'm like, they're like, I'm not sure if that counts, and I was like, what? <laughs> Episcopalians think about this differently than Baptists do, it turns out. But, but that, that this identity of American is, is this very fictionalized thing um, that is not necessarily contained in the world. Uh, Rory, I have a question that I've been holding on to, which I wonder if I could ask you again about. Um, the thing that I've been picking on in my brain since October last year, when you talked about the particular understanding of the American Jewish community, and, and you hinted at it a little bit in the discussion about, you know, can we call these concentration camps or not? And I don't want to refer to that. But could you tell the story about, um, as an American Jewish leader, the, you, and I've not heard the story, but I've heard you tell it, about um, the folks that were denied entry during World War II, and what is it, how does the Jewish community, like, what is your lens about um, how, you know, legal migration happens or how people are welcomed? Talk about the particular sensibility and, and is that shifting right now? Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, I think it's really important to recognize that when we talk about the, one of the legal processes of coming into this country is um, asylum seeking, right? And that's the, uh, the debate that's happening right now where people who are coming in, coming in legally because they are asylum seekers. Many of the laws of asylum came into place after World War II specifically, um, I would say largely advocated by the American Jewish community and the recognition that um, Jews initially, when, when Nazi Germany first started to um, persecute, and, and I'm telling the story from the Jewish lens not to ignore other communities that were also significantly persecuted by Nazi Germany, but just to tell my own story. Um, when the Jewish community was first being persecuted by Nazi Germany, many Jews tried to leave. 
Um, it, it did not start with genocide. I think this is also a common conversation now, the stages of genocide. Nothing starts with genocide when the laws against Jews, the denaturalization, um, saying Jews were no longer citizens, forbidding Jews from participating in certain businesses, wearing the yellow star, all of those, Jews knew what was going on. I mean, they saw the writing on the wall, and many tried to get out. And one of the most famous stories um, is the story of a ship by the name of the MS St. Louis. Uh, no connection to the city, actually. Um, but the ship was carrying about 930-some-odd um, Jewish passengers trying to escape from Nazi Germany in 1939. It made it to, they were initially going to go to Havana, um, and many people had papers to enter Havana. Havana changed their immigration laws while the people were on the ship. They pulled into Havana. Havana denied entry um, to all except for, I think, one person. Someone was sick. They let them in. Um, the ship then went to off the coast of Miami. They tried to message anyone in the United States who would listen, President Roosevelt, the mayor of St. Louis, just to be like, hey, we have the same name. Maybe that brings us a bond. Can you help us out? Um, fun fact, Mayor Slay actually, uh, just a couple of years ago, issued a formal apology. Um, you know, did not hear back from anybody, um, were turned away by the Coast Guard off the coast of Miami, then went up the coast off of Nova Scotia, were denied entry to Canada, Justin Trudeau also apologized recently, um, and were ultimately sent back to Nazi Germany. Um, about half of them were able to go to Britain, but the other half went to mainland Europe. No, sorry, a significant portion went to mainland Europe. I think about 200 made it to Britain, and of those who were sent back to mainland Europe, half of them were killed um, during the Holocaust. Um, and so we tell over that story, we tell over the story because the same narratives that were used at the time, like it, was, it was all of the same stories. It was that Jews were um, communists, which may or may not have actually been true. Um, uh, no, Jews were communists, socialists, um, deceased. They would take our jobs. They would undermine our culture. They would overtake our society. Um, and, and it's important, I think, to remember, you know, we tell the story because we're at a point now where I, I'd like to hope anyway, don't, don't dispel me of this myth, right? But we're, like, Jews are more mainstream, like, Jews are more accepted within American society than we once were. Um, and so we can look back and say, this was obviously a time where we were wrong. Um, but the reality is, is that public opinion was largely against letting immigrants and refugees in during World War II, right? I mean, America did not want to get involved in the war, was not looking to be the place for immigrants. Um, and the fact that the Jews were sent back, um, this was 1939, actually became the impetus for what ultimately became the final solution. That was when Nazi Germany said, well, look, we're trying to let them leave, but no one else wants them, so our only option is putting them into camps, and then ultimately it turned into death camps. Um, so that, the fact, right, that was sort of the excuse, right? Like, we don't want them here, but we don't care if they go somewhere else, but if the rest of the world doesn't want them, then we have no other option but to deal with them. So, sorry, so to go to your question of, like, is that change? I mean, no, the truth is, I think for the Jewish community, you know, we very much see, I mean, there's very much this narrative um, in the Jewish community, we say, because we were refugees, um, and we talk a lot about immigration stories, many of us do, but many Jews have refugee stories, ways that people were in some ways sponsored, um, odd paths. So many people who escaped from um, occupied European countries didn't necessarily come directly to the United States. Um, they went through China, they went through, um, uh, they went through Palestine, they went through a variety of places before they were able to gain entry into the United States. I also 
immigration policies were still vastly different than they were today. Um, and the other thing is, and I think I shared this also when we spoke, is that you know, when I was growing up in the Jewish community, I mean, I, I'm Jewish, when I grew up, um, it, it was a source of pride. You know, like, you did what you needed to do to survive. And the notion that you could have had a family member who stole someone else's papers, who lied about their identity, I mean, it was not uncommon. I'd say even to this day, um, my husband's grandfather just recently passed away. My husband is still not sure if the name that he knows was actually the name that he was born with. He's fairly convinced that it's not, but his grandfather would never tell him the full story. Um, multiple people who had a date of birth that was different than the actual year they were born, and so they would tell you that they were 86, but their date of birth put them at 82, because it's whatever you found and whatever you needed to do to survive. Um, and so we, we have this narrative now of illegal immigration in ways that people are breaking the laws, and it's all context of who you're talking about, right? When it was your family members, it was you know how your great-grandfather saved your family, right? Because at the end of the day, I mean, and that's the poem that you shared with us, right? You don't do it unless survival's on the line, and if you survive, you win. The, the other piece I want to throw in, so um, those of you who are around Holy Communion regularly know that we have a partnership in El Salvador. The organization down there um, is a human rights specific organization. And that framework that created our asylum laws, the human rights framework that gets brought in after World War II with a lot of Jewish authorship, with a lot of um, participation with community that, um, that framework does a lot of our international law framing. Um, the International Declaration of Human Rights is a lot of the reason why our asylum laws exist the way they do, and a lot of the reason why the organization we work with, Christosol, is able to, in Central America, sue governments effectively um, to work on human rights issues in those countries. The thing that makes, from a faith perspective, um, the other thing that's been ringing in my head a lot lately, there's a quote from Archbishop Romero who said, what a tragedy it is that someone has to flee their homeland to be able to make a living. And th this is, you know, this is back 1970s. So most migration, 70s, 80s, was economic migration. Uh, even up into the 90s, mostly economic-driven migration. Most of what we are talking about now, most of the reason why we have people waiting um, in Juarez and other cities along the Mexican border is fear of violence. Um, when we were down, the group that went down to El Salvador with us, um, the question that was being raised over and over and over again is, there are a lot of these international laws that only apply if you're in war, but when the death rates in our neighborhoods are the same that they are in Iraq during the war there, aren't we in a war? Now, I say that, and then I will tell you that San Salvador is typically thought of as a very dangerous city. St. Louis has a higher per capita um, gun violence rate than San Salvador. So questions of impunity, questions of are we at war, questions of human rights are contextual. But one of the pieces that I want to say is the border and immigration issue, the policy questions that we're raising it's one thing to ask, what are the human rights of the asylum seekers that arrive at our border? It's another question to ask, what are the human rights of the folks living in a city that is closer to St. Louis than Seattle? 
who are living under daily threat of death, who large numbers of the guns that are being used to threaten or kill are coming from the U.S. black market or were, are still there from a U.S. funded war. What is our responsibility there? The thing that makes absolutely no sense in my mind is that while the administration is pursuing the policy that might have opened the detention center in Fort Sill, they are also systemically defunding programs in Central America that have proven results to help people stay in country and, and avoid violence. It makes no sense. Um, from a Christian perspective, this makes absolutely no sense. On, on a one level, like we could, I could say, sit here and say I'm a bleeding heart liberal, we should have open borders, but honestly I don't think that that solves the problem. If we don't look systemically at what is going on in country and how we can participate in ending the fear that folks live with, why these kids undertook an incredibly dangerous journey only to die in custody in the United States. If we don't get there, I don't know what we're doing. Um, and so if you're sick of having the debate about what should happen on our border, I'd invite you to spend some time learning about organizations that are involved in Central America at the root of the crisis. Um, spend time talking to your friends. Okay, we're not going to agree about border policy, but how should our country be involved in peace building, in justice building, in equity building, in countries so people don't have to flee for their lives? If you need to go there, go there. Um, and I don't understand, and I hope for a big change in the electoral politics so that we can have that conversation. Um, but that's where I'm sitting with it. Other questions, other thoughts? I want to let Rory also talk about some of the other things to be following up with. Does anyone know of organizations that are advocating now to make sure that flu shots and hepatitis vaccinations um, are actually needed? Because I know the U.S. policy is I know that there's groups that are advocating. I don't know if they're particular organizations. I don't know what kind of efforts. We could try to look into that more. I think part of the challenge that we're facing is that it's so overwhelming all that's taking place that there's no centralized body that's coordinating any of this. And it's, it's kind of this game of whack-a-mole. The policy pops up and you know people are reacting. So, um, but I would say that whether or not there's an organization that's specifically doing the work, and I, I think there are some that are on the ground that are that are trying to, um, I don't think that any of that stops you as an individual from still calling elected officials and making known to the senators and the congresspeople here that you find this to be an unacceptable policy and that we need to be doing better for the people who are in, who are our responsibility in U.S. care. Other things? We have a huge immigrant population in St. Louis uh, because of a war, because of a policy. Yeah. Where and how, and is there any way to link that success, which I think it is a success for the most part, to uh, the situations that we're facing at the border, the southern border? Yeah, I mean, I do. Th I think that that is some of the narrative that we're coming out of St. Louis is talking about ways that St. Louis, in particular, has benefited from, um, in particular, the Bosnian population, but other populations that have come in. 
Um, Betsy Cohen with the Mosaic Project is doing a lot on this. She specifically has been tasked, I won't remember the numbers, but when you start looking at ranking of cities, St. Louis comes out incredibly low because major cities and successful cities have a certain percentage of what's called foreign-born individuals. So individuals who either um, immigrate to St. Louis or migrate from other cities. Um, and that brings, you know, creativity and innovation and new business and a vibrancy to the community. And St. Louis, I think other cities, you know, kind of average at like, don't quote me on the numbers, but, you know, they might average like a 10% and we're at like 2%. And so we're trying to lift that up. And so a lot of what Betsy Cohen does is really try to tell the stories of the populations that have brought business, income, and all of those things to the St. Louis region. Um, and the Bosnian community has been, I think, a central part of the success story. But, you know, that's something that not everybody is aware of and not everybody interacts with. And so I think those are also stories we have to keep on elevating. I think it's also important to remember that when new people come into cities, right, economies are not zero-sum games. So a new person coming in doesn't just take somebody else's job. A new family coming in also buys new groceries, buys a house, invests in the region, uses businesses, right, and ultimately, a bunch of new people come in, requires a new grocery store, which then is more income, more tax revenue, but new business opportunities, more jobs, you need more teachers in the schools, right? So all of the ways in which St. Louis actually needs new populations to come in to continue to boost the economy here.
Oklahoma trip, one of the best things about it was that it didn't just end when we got back here and you went to your cars, but a day later there was an email, like a five-page email, that listed links to all of the different news coverage of the event, and more importantly, there listed other events coming up that you might want to take part in. And now some of these have come and gone because this took place in early August, but one of them that I went to was called the ICE Accompaniment Training, ICE being Immigration and Customs Enforcement. When these folks are allowed into the country to stay here while their cases are being, I suppose when they file their cases are being worked out, but you know, they're, they're not permanently here. They have to go to an appointment with the customs and the immigration people on a certain regular basis. And this committee tries to send a team with those people, the compañeros they call them, the convicts. And uh, typically a team will consist of four people. They'll have the team leader, clergy, the translator, and the historian. And the historian kind of takes notes about what happened. Now the translator is not the official translator, it's one more to, you know, behind the scenes. And you're there not to act as lawyers or anything else, but you're there to just kind of lend your support to this person. It's kind of an intimidating situation. So I went to this training about two, maybe two weeks ago, and the person leading the training said, now, I can tell you you're going to leave here with more questions than answers. And she accomplished that goal. <laughs> and, um, I have like a five-page or eight-page document here. But periodically, you'll get an email, if you're interested in doing this, you'll get an email, and it'll say, we have a case that comes up tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, or Thursday morning at 10 o'clock, or whatever. Who's available? So you respond to that email or text, and uh, maybe you're the first one who responds, and you have the Spanish language background, so you can be the translator. Now, I'm, this is all theory I'm talking at this point, because at about 5 o'clock this afternoon, I got the word, yes, tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, be downtown on Locust Street. So I'm kind of hyperventilating. <laughs> so I'm trying to pay attention to this, but most of the people don't have to do it. But, uh, you know, if this takes taken place a few days from now, I might have more first-hand experience to tell you about. But it's just one example of the other things that are going on that probably will keep going, because for some reason, they don't have a team that goes with every immigrant that has their case done. So there must be more demand out there. They just have to ramp up and get it done. But there must have been 50 people at this training, so I feel good about that. I don't know how many are bilingual. Uh, I don't know how many are clergy. Um, but you know, they, they, they look for all those different backgrounds for us. And I will say one other thing. I went on this bus trip. 45 years ago, I, I was in the Army, I, left, I was in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and I left there smiling from ear to ear because I hated the law in Oklahoma. And I could have spent my whole two years there instead of going overseas, but I said, get me out of here. And I swore I would never go back to Oklahoma. And until the last month, I kept that back. And I felt like I had to stop being an armchair liberal and start doing something. So.
We will be back here the first Tuesday of October. is the first of October. Um, we'll be here at Russell's. As I said earlier, our guest will be um, Dr. Adam Floyd from Eaton Seminary. He's probably our most frequent theology on tap um, guest, but his biggest qualification on this one is he is a super nerd. Um, the uh, last, for now, until Disney figures out how to make more money off of the franchise, uh, Star Wars movie is coming out in December. And we thought it would be fun in the line of what we did earlier this year around um, Harry Potter to do a Star Wars Theology Untapped and talk about all things theology and the Force. So we're calling it, May the Force Be With You, which Episcopalians then respond with, and also with you. So um, come back on the 1st of October for Theology Untapped and Star Wars, May the Force Be With You. Um, in November, we will be taking a brief hiatus, a one-month hiatus, because the first Tuesday of November, there will be a conversation over at Trinity Episcopal Church in the Central West End um, with our candidates to be the next Episcopal Bishop of Missouri. We'll be in that month intensely talking with folks. We're, we're flipping totally around from outward facing, everyone is welcome, to total internal politics. Um, but we, because it's so near and um, close to us, uh, we won't have Theology on Tap that night. We will go over and listen to bishops. Some of us might come over here to Brussels for a beer afterward because we might need it after listening to Bishop candidates. Um, <laughs> um, some of us might need it because we've been involved in the process of vetting those candidates. So, um, but uh, but yeah, no. So that'll be November, and then we'll be back in December. Will you all join me in thanking uh, Lori Anzalotti and Lori? Take a card. Take a card, and please remember to um, to close your tabs. Uh, and I'll make Both are equally important. Equally important. And if you haven't yet had a conversation with John Stratton about Medicaid, have a conversation with John Stratton about Medicaid. Yeah.